everybody. Welcome back to Bottomless Coffee. Super excited to have you here. I am, um, I'm actually running low on my cup today, um, but that's because I was chugging before uh, I started conversing with our guests in our like pre-call. Um, we are covering ground that you're already somewhat familiar with today. It's caregiving. Um, you'll remember we talked uh, with Rachel from episode two. Um, she at the time was the sole executive director of Love Labor Project. And then she came back in episode eight and talked about um, a merger with an Atlanta-based organization called Our Turn to Care. So now the Love Labor Project has two executive directors and one of those executive directors is here with us today. Hi, Aisha. Aisha Atkins. I should, I should say her name. <laughs> Hi, Aisha. How are you? I am doing great, Jerome. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, I was really enjoying our uh, pre-recorded conversation. And, um, you know, I, I was trying to hold back and not share too much of my personal experience with caregiving ahead of time, because I know we've got so many points of intersection uh, to discuss today. And um, I really do feel like, and I think a lot of our listeners and viewers are also going to feel as though caregiving is coming up a lot more often in our lives now that we are more aware of it. And so, um, you know, in a general sense, uh, most recently, I, I was reading about President Biden's infrastructure bill. And, um, you know, right alongside roads and bridges and what have you, there's also a provision for caregiving that it turns out you know more about than I do. You know, I guess surprise, surprise, it's caregiving. So <laughs> that makes sense. Um, but your specific area of expertise vis-a-vis -vis our turn to care was um, BIPOC, and LGBTQIA and historically marginalized by white supremacist thinking people's um, caregivers, right? Now, was that also millennial caregivers in particular, like um, like Rachel was doing with Love Labor Project before you came? Yes, most definitely. Uh, so um, early on in my caregiving journey, you know, I really noticed um, the gaps in information and resources and support um, for communities that uh, and caregivers who are often, you know, very marginalized in society and historically so, as you mentioned, um, but particularly as a 27 year old at the time, um, I realized that a lot of the information was really a foreign language to me. Um, because you know, I, I wasn't familiar with Medicare and you know, uh, power of attorney privileges and mm. um, kind of all of this jargon that uh, you typically are not introduced to introduced to until you are uh, much older in age. Yeah. Uh, so it was new territory for me, but I knew I probably wasn't the only one. And that really tracks with um, you know what the limited bit that I know about caregiving. It's that everyone needs it. No one really knows a lot about it. And for some reason, I say no one, you know a lot about it. Caregivers know a lot about it. 
Um, but for some reason, the that infrastructure and the legalese behind it, everything is very complicated, and it becomes like very difficult for caregivers to do something that is already difficult. Um, and just a little bit about my personal experience with caregiving, just to ground it. Uh, aside from the conversations with Rachel, I've never been a caregiver myself. Um, my grandmother, who lives in Goldsboro, North Carolina, if you're familiar with that area, um, the mother of my uncle, Mike Evans, that we were just talking about pre <laughs> in the pre-recorded part of the call, uh, she is one of 11 siblings. And... Every time we talk or I visit or what have you, I do hear about who she's taken care, taking care of. And as far back as I can remember, and I was going there to Goldsboro as a, as a kid, um, in particular, like my Aunt Wanda, she had, she had a salve that she had to rub on her leg and she had to do all of these, uh, all of these tasks. But, you know, that was never, like the idea of being, uh, compensated for it um, was never really part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. It was. It seemed like something she was just kind of expected to do. Um, maybe that has to do with the fact that she was a woman. Maybe if she was a younger daughter, um, I actually don't know where she falls uh, in the line of 11, right? I think it's towards <laughs> the back. <laughs> or that she had uh, was either a nurse or a volunteer nurse which during her time would have been one of the few jobs that a black woman would have been able to do. Um, So I am, so when you say that, uh, you looked around and there wasn't any support for uh, caregivers of color or who had been historically marginalized, parts of those communities. That's really, that's a huge, obvious gap. And I'm really glad that you stepped up. can you tell us more about our turn to care and what you do and how it works? Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, I, first of all, I, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, um, you mentioned that, uh, you know, care is often kind of just something that you do mm-hmm. and it's sort of an ex- expectation. Um, I think particularly in communities of color, uh, it there is more of a an idea of, uh, family loyalty that is just different um, from from predominantly white communities, uh, and you know, I, there's actually a, a sociological theory called uh, familialism, uh, and it's the expectation that uh, that family will will provide care um, for the sick and aging loved ones in their family, and um, you know, viewing that through a feminist lens most often that is the uh, eldest daughter. Um, And so you were right on with that. Um, You know, with our turn to care, um, I started in 2017 um, because I really wanted to create space, hold space um, for culturally relevant uh, content. Um, There are a lot of things that I think people who belong to majority demographics uh, take for granted mm-hmm. uh, in in looking for care. Uh, so whether it's things like if you hire a paid care worker to come into your home um, to help assist with your loved one, but uh, 
you know, your first language is not English, for instance, um, you know, communication is uh, severely affected, uh, or the person that's being receiving the care, um, you know, their first language is not English. Um, and that definitely has an impact. Um, there are religious considerations to be taken into account uh, when uh, providing providing care, um, whether it has to do with modesty or, um, you know, of dress or uh, different ritual practices or food, you know, food restrictions. Uh, you know, there are so many things that I think that people don't really consider um, in even just the dynamics of, of race, um, of gender, of gender identity, um, you know, for folks uh, in the LGBTQIA plus community, you know, it can be difficult providing care for maybe a loved one who is not um, accepting or affirming, um, you know, of their, their identity. And so, you know, oh, just, yeah. I've, I've always been one to really fight for the underdogs. And uh, so I, I certainly, you know, was eager to, to let folk, let, you know, young adult caregivers know um, that there's someone who's rooting for them. Um, primarily, we began uh, as, as a resource hub. Um, and there's a lot of information about, um, you know, what's, what is Medicare? What is Medicaid? Um, how do you navigate those systems? Um, Good information. <laughs> yes, yes, and vital information, yes. because the, these are the avenues that um, people use to, to access the services that are in the community. Um, you know, Biden's American Jobs Plan, um, you know, one of the key uh, points within that, um, within that bill is uh, home and community-based services. Uh, and that includes things like um, not only having a paid care worker come into the home, uh, but day programs um, that you know provide enrichment for older adults and socialization, um, home modifications. Uh, you know, if there is an, a change in ability, um, you know, someone who is maybe more mobile, and you know, in my mother's case, um, you know, she's lost a lot of her mobility. So you know, being able to have um, modifications in the home to make it uh, safer and, more, and easier for them to navigate the home. Um, and then also, you know, legal services, um, you know, getting advice on, on things like estate planning. Uh, you know, what do we, you know, what do we do when, you know, there are 10, 10 siblings, one is performing most of the care work. Um, and, you know, but, you know, our grandmother doesn't have a will for instance, and, yeah. you know, how are those things, you know, how are her belongings then dispersed? So there are a lot of things that, um, that come into play. Um, so and, are... you know, I feel like, I feel like our communities um, also don't always have access to um, the educational aspect of it, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where we, where we started. And I really also was passionate about, um, you know, holding, um, space around support groups. Uh, so many of the support groups that I've belonged to, that I've um, participated in, are predominantly white, predominantly older adults uh, mm -hmm. over the age of 65. And so, you know, there, the discussion there um, is not about starting your career. It's not about, um, you know, uh, starting a family or um, looking for, you know, a, a partner. Uh, it's, you know, these things are often already established. And so just the tone of the conversation is very different. So I wanted to make sure that that, that there was a space uh, to have those kinds of conversations. And, um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I uh, found that Rachel was um, 
you know, had created a, a similar space and uh, we connected and became fast friends. Oh, that's fantastic. So in, in the history of Bottomless Coffee, um, I have never had to take notes. <laughs> but, <laughs> as you were, as you were even just really introducing our turn to care to us and the work that you do and the resources, I said, let me grab a pencil and paper because there, <laughs> there really is so much to unpack. And um, when we're talking about caregivers, um, BIPOC and marginalized millennial caregivers, we're talking about taking care of people who are often or often significantly older, particularly in that professional setting. And when I, after interviewing Rachel, was just on Instagram, like hashtag caregiver going through. And uh, y'all, some of the people who, um, you know, people who look like me or look like a sister I might have or taken care of are terrible human beings right? They are like, they're spitting on people, they're cussing people out. And I had like, literally no idea, you know, because I'm like, episode two, I learned about caregiving. The next week, I'm on Instagram looking at caregiving. And I'm like, what is happening? These people are trying to serve you food. They are bathing you. They are like helping you care for yourself when you are not able to. And like the supremacist thinking and the racism the xenophobia is so strong um, in those minds that it's a wonder that the caregiver doesn't just like, or the professional caregiver in this case, doesn't just quit and leave. And so um, the space is absolutely needed. Uh, and I'm really, really applaud you for that. And I did want to just highlight that little glimpse of what I saw when I barely looked, right? Um, because I don't think that a lot of listeners would appreciate that need. Um, I also heard you talk about education. Um, and I think, so this hasn't aired yet, but, uh, and, and here I am talking about my grandmother again. <laughs> but in Goldsboro, you know, we drove around and we said, you know, uh, this is where uh, rich white people live. This is where poor black people live. This is where progressive white people live because they want to be next to black people or what have you. <laughs> and well, that segregation, that intentional segregation, really does contribute to disparities in education, but not just the kind that you can assess by testing, but also the kind of guidance like, you know, this is Medicare and this is Medicaid and this is how you navigate these government programs because they are not easy. Y'all, and I don't, I mean, you probably, no. you can't see it on here. There's a JD on the wall right over there. And when I try to read the the Medicaid law and the Medicare law and, and try to really traverse those healthcare systems and the explanations that are provided for them, I am lost, <laughs> like absolutely lost. And so the resources that you are providing are literally essential. Um, and I don't think uh, that, that I needed to make sure that was lifted up as well. Um, all of that before I get to something you snuck in there, which is the uh, a little bit about Biden, what's in Biden's infrastructure plan, because uh, it sounds like in your day job, 
you uh, do some policy work. And so I'd love just to hear a little bit more about that so I can nerd out a little bit. Most definitely. So um, around the time that uh, Rachel and I, you know, kind of started to explore um, some partnership opportunities and how we could work together. Um, I also became the constituency organizer uh, for Caring Across Generations. And uh, it's a policy advocacy organization that I've actually been involved with since about, uh, I'd say 2018. Um, I started as, as a volunteer. Um, and it, it's kind of interesting how I became involved with the organization. Um, I, I was at a conference in Florida called Blog Her, uh, and it is a it is the largest um, conference for women in digital media. Um, I'm also a, a writer, and I, I was doing a lot of freelance work at the time. Do you need to plug? And, do you need to plug another website? Because you can do that here. <laughs> uh, just blogher.com. Blogher uh, I guess I can plug that, but. Um, yeah, it was it was a fantastic uh, conference. One of the things that really shocked me um, was that on the list of of breakout sessions was um, a conversation about caregiving. Uh, I thought that was odd because <laughs> I was trying to figure out what is the connection between uh, digital media and caregiving. Um, when I sat in on that conversation, uh, I realized that there are these women on stage who you know represented. Uh, different races, different ages, uh, but they were all using digital platforms to share their story. Um, and I think that's also really where um, I got the idea specifically for our turn to care. Um, there were a lot of things that, you know, observations that led up to it, but um, the idea to form something specific uh, really came from that conference. Uh, while I was there, there was a woman um, by the name of Jamie Jin, and she was with the organization Caring Across Generations. Uh, she approached me after I kind of shared a bit about my personal journey uh, and said that, you know, I should reach out to one of her colleagues, um, Vanessa Farage, who, um, you know, connects with family caregivers, learns their stories, uh, which are then used to um, kind of support the policies that are put in place, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure that some folks have seen maybe on C-SPAN, um, you know, but certainly in pre, uh, pre-pandemic times, uh, you would have kind of lobby days and you'd have folks, um, you know, if a bill is trying to be passed, um, folks may give a testimonial as to why, you know, it's important. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that's so that's a lot of the work that Caring Across Generations does. Um, and over the years, I just kind of have become more and more involved. Uh, I participated in their fellowship um, in t- 2019, the inaugural fellowship, um, and uh, completed an internship as a um, legislative and organizing analyst. And then uh, at the beginning of in the first quarter of this year, um, I, I signed on full time as their their uh, constituency organizer. And so I, you know, I spend all day really talking to other family caregivers about, you know, what resources have been helpful, um, but also what are the barriers um, to accessing those resources. And so one of the things that um, we did as an organization back in March uh, is we conducted a lobby day, or I'm sorry, a week of action. So it was a week of lobbying um, our elected officials across the country. Uh, And we, you know, over Zoom, we, uh, you know, just spoke with folks and really made our appeal uh, in asking um, for support in 
Biden's decision um, that had not been made at the time, mm -hmm. but to include care uh, in, you know, within these conversations about infrastructure, um, specifically $400 billion um, to be allotted to uh, home and community-based services that I that I shared about yes. before. Um, and, you know, I'm really, really proud of this work. Uh, and, you know, most recently, you know, we discovered that that $400 billion was, was set aside for care uh, and for home and community-based services. And that is a huge deal. That is a huge oh, yeah. victory um, because it supports uh, the programs that exist, but it also makes room for the programs and services that currently don't exist mm -hmm. um, and that people don't yet have access to in some states. Uh, so it's a big win, but there's definitely still a lot of work to do. Yeah, because when we're talking about our turn to care, you saw the need, you developed it, but it was pre-pandemic, at least it was very specific to the Atlanta area. And it's, isn't it so frustrating when you see a need that is so big and you're like, okay, I can do this much. I can do this small amount <laughs> to move the needle by like an inch, even though we, I know there are miles and miles to go. Um, okay. So we've been going a little bit over 20 minutes because we're talkers. Let's take a quick coffee break and then I want to come back and we've got to talk about the values that led you into becoming this incredible person. Uh, I am so interested. We will be right back. <laughs> okay, we are back with Aisha Atkins, co-executive director of Love Labor Project founder of Our Turn to Care, which is now a program of Love Labor Project. Ooh, and oh, I wrote it down. What is the name of the of the organization that you're currently working for that we just talked about? Yes, Caring Across Generations. Caring Across Generations. Um, and then, um, duh, I'm, I'm so bad at this lately. Your Instagram handle or wherever people can follow you. Yeah, definitely. So uh, you can find me on most of the the, the social meds. Uh, I'm <laughs> at uh, Aisha dot Adkins. That's A D K I N S uh, on Instagram, and then just Aisha Adkins um, on Twitter. Uh, yeah, she Feel posts good stuff. I follow her. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. So um, professionally and. Yeah, I would just say exclusively, you're a professional caregiver, uh, nonprofit founder, uh, organizer. So professionally, you've gotten to a really impressive place. Um, you know, in the gay parlance, I'm gagged over all that you're doing. And so <laughs> I, I think um, the purpose of these podcast episodes is to leave people feeling like inspired and empowered to make a positive change in their own sphere. And you're doing that. And so let's go back, however far um, you're comfortable with, to talk about the values and events that led you to become the kind of person that sees a problem and then does something about it. Because a lot of people have trouble making that, what maybe for us seems like a small jump, you know, because once you do the little, that, that jump, you know, there's a lot more afterwards, right? <laughs> <laughs> but to some people, that jump seems really big. Um, so what? T tell us about it. Walk us through the journey. Yeah, no, most definitely. Um, and I should probably share that I, so I, you mentioned that I'm a professional caregiver, um, but I'm actually a 
unpaid care, just family yeah. caregiver for, for my parents. Um, and there's definitely a distinction there. Um, but at this point I feel in some ways like an expert. Um, mm. so, uh, in that sphere, um, but to answer your question, you know, kind of what formative, uh, you know, journey brought me here, um, you know, initially, uh, I, I was born uh, three months, three months prematurely. I weighed a pound and a half at birth, oh, wow. um, and so you know, I had a lot of medical challenges uh, growing up, and I've had over forty surgeries, and so hmm. you know, I was on the receiving end of care for most of my life. Um, and so I definitely saw that taking place uh, in, in my household. Um, I, you know, my father had kind of a freak accident with the pair of sneakers uh, and he actually ruptured his, both of his patella tendons uh, when I was seven. And I really saw our community, our neighborhood, um, you know, come together mm. to really help our family, you know, everything from, you know, coming over to, Cook, cook meals for us, uh, to bring us groceries. Uh, one family took me in for Thanksgiving. My father was hospitalized for some complications with some medication. So um, I really saw people taking action in that way. Uh, another uh, kind of side effect of, of my childhood illness is also uh, that I was bullied a lot growing up. Mm. Um, that was further complicated by the fact that I was um, one of three black children in a predominantly white school. Uh, so I experienced, oh, yeah. you know, just severe, I don't know that I care for the term bullying. Um, I call it peer harassment because, uh, you know, if the same things that took place, uh, you know, in our school systems took place in the workplace, you know, there would be cause for potentially for, you know, uh, lawsuits and arrest and all kinds of consequences. But we, you know, at the same time, when we're talking about children, uh, you know, there's this idea that, you know, we say boys will be boys or kids are just, you know, they're just playing around, but their actions still have uh, real and long-term consequences. So I think from an early age, I always knew that I wanted to help people um, who were suffering mm. and who, uh, you know, who felt unloved who felt um that they just existed on the the, the edges of society uh and that were you know really struggling and so uh, it was always a part of my plan uh, i initially uh planned to earn my master's degree in social work i have an undergraduate degree uh, in social services uh, sociology with social services emphasis um but it's interesting because when my mom, my mother became ill uh, in 2013, she was diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia. Uh, I was working in healthcare at the time. Oh. And I really thought that, you know, my career path was in healthcare. Uh, I figured I would either get my master's in social work um, or, you know, in pediatric social work specifically. Uh, and then I discovered something called child life specialty, um, where you are kind of a liaison between the physician, the family, uh, and the patient um, for children who are um, confronting uh, terminal illness or, you know, major life-changing operations. You know, I saw myself in that space as well, uh, eventually. But interacting with the social worker uh, at the hospital where my mother, or the, the healthcare system where my mother was receiving treatment um, was really a frustrating experience because 
Um, it felt like the social worker that you know he had been assigned to, which may have frankly been the only social worker uh, for what was a very, very large, what's a very large healthcare system, I think possibly the largest one in the state of Georgia, uh, really did not have solid solutions um, and reasonable resources. Uh, we got, you know, she, she gave us a couple of pamphlets and sort of sent us on our way uh, and, and said she'd call us and check in. Um, but I really, I think the kind of assistance that we were looking for, the kind of answers we were looking for um, in terms of understanding the disease better, um, figuring out what supports we would need um, during the course of this progressive terminal illness, um, she was not able to provide. Mm. And I could tell that it frustrated her uh, because there's, there, there was, a, this, there was a, a sense of hopelessness that she exuded, mm. uh, which, you know, obviously, for a family in crisis uh, is not uplifting in any way. Yeah. And I, I just realized that I don't, I never wanted to be in a position where I didn't feel like I could make a difference um, because uh. either my workload capacity was too high um, or I just wasn't provided with the resources that I needed in order to uh, set others up for success, mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, so I, I still wanted to help people. Um, and, you know, I explored other possible ways that I could do that. I looked, you know, at the tech startup world, innovations in healthcare technology, um, and didn't find that that was a good fit, uh, predominantly because of my caregiving uh, responsibilities. I think, you know, employers are really hesitant to hire someone if they know that they're a caregiver, uh, because there are questions around, you know, availability, you know, as a caregiver, at any moment, I may have to step aside from a meeting and, you know, be there for my family. And that's a priority. And, you know, a lot of employers would like to think um, that employment at their, uh, their company, their organization is, is your top priority. And that's just not the case yeah. for me. And I don't think that's the case for most people, but I think that's kind of the wish, particularly in startup communities where, you know, they can be very uh, engulfing mm -hmm. uh, and really take over. Um, and so I eventually, um, you know, once I had launched Our Turn to Care, uh, about a year and a half in, um, I was actually on Facebook and uh, I saw an ad for uh, the Andrew Young School of Public, um, of Public Studies. And uh, this is a school that was named after um, the Andrew Young, uh, Ambassador Andrew Young, who was uh, a key figure in the uh, civil rights movement of the 1960s. Um, was an ambassador uh, for the UN. And, uh, you know, he's an amazing person. I've had the privilege of meeting, but this is his namesake uh, yeah. pro, you know, college within Georgia State University. And they had a program um, for nonprofit management. Uh, and I, uh -huh. you know, as a budding nonprofit leader, thought this is this sounds this sounds like something that that I could be into, and uh, upon for, further explore, exploration, I found out that this program was actually designed with working professionals in mind. Um, the courses took place, you know, after four p.m. Um, and when my father was working full time, uh, you know, it worked out for him to be able to leave, you know, about an hour earlier, and you know, I would basically trade places with him and caring for my mother um, and head downtown. And I re like, 
I just was so inspired by, uh, you know, my classmates in that program uh, who were constantly encouraging me. I also involved, uh, still involved in a research team um, through the School of Nursing in partnership with Emory University um, called ALTER uh, that actually looks at um, the impact of faith on uh, African-American uh, caregivers of persons with dementia. Um, I definitely could relate to that, you know. Wow, that's family, specific? You know, yes, very, very specific, <laughs> very niche. Um, but they're really dedicated to making sure that, you know, older adults and, and people who've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or another form of dementia um, don't lose connection to uh, their faith community, right? And so, um, you know, and we know oftentimes in the African-American tradition, particularly in the South, um, you know, churches have played a big role in, um, in the community and uh, often are, you know, sources and hubs for information about, uh, about health yeah. and about wellness. And so, you know, figuring out how to educate those populations on what dementia is and, um, and you know, what you're, uh, kind of treatment options are because there's no cure, um, but you can manage the symptoms, you know, and, and making sure that that information then gets into the, the broader communities um, that, you know, was perfect for me. And so yeah. I really, really had, um, you know, a dream experience for, for, for my graduate studies. And I yeah. um, finished, I completed my, earned my degree uh, in uh, December, 2020. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, oh, I congratulations. So I, just, I just had to look at the date on the computer. I was like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Most definitely. I mean, you know, years and days and times all kind of blur together, yeah. I think, at this point. Um, but, you know, I, I'm really proud that I was able to, to, to accomplish that. Um, mm -hmm. But also, you know, just those experiences. And I think, you know, being able to, I was able to uh, specialize uh, I had an individual concentration uh, in sociology and healthcare. So uh, again, very specific, um, but, you know, being able to design a program that really informed the work, the kind of work that I wanted to do yeah. was really important to me. And, uh, and, and here we are. <laughs> okay. Okay. I had to pick up my pencil again. Um, <laughs> I heard, um, you know, if I if I were scripting this out in my mind, if it was putting in text, I there are a lot of different chapters, but I think each chapter is kind of highlighted or centered around a theme of inspiration in some way. And, um, you know, maybe you were too young. You were, you know, you were a premature baby, so you really probably weren't inspired in that moment by what was going on. But it sounds like your family really showed up for you and that healthcare became really important to you at a, the earliest age um, and it's ongoing. Mm -hmm. And then your father, um, when he uh, had something happen to him regard involving sneakers, um, <laughs> every people just showed up. Um, and that sense of community uh, I think is something that maybe inspired you. I know it inspires me like every day. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I, I can almost like point a direct, <laughs> like a direct line. Oh, she was really inspired by community at a, at a young age. 
now she's um, bringing together a community that supports <laughs> things that she's interested in or um, people who need that support um, and who might be facing the so weird that we talked about this, who might be facing professional harassment, similar to the harassment that you experienced as a child. And it's, I mean, honestly, it's like things really lined up for you, huh? (laughs) Most definitely. Most definitely. Because often it doesn't make sense how people get to where they are. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's, it's, I think it's, probably a bit unusual how yes. uh how direct my trajectory was <laughs> yes. uh, but i but i also you know believe in you know divine providence and and mm-hmm. and, and i i believe in purpose and so um you know i would like to think that even the most difficult things that i went through um you know really contributed to um a stronger character than I think maybe I would have had otherwise um, that combined with the values that my parents instilled in me um, to, to help those who um, were in difficult situations. Uh, and, and I saw a lot of that as well. I think something that's kind of like gathering around me in the ether right now, when you're talking about your family um, and the values they instilled in you and your um, almost like confidence and purpose, um, you mentioned uh, wanting to join a tech startup, but as a caregiver, feeling as though this employee, these employers were not open to that experience. Um, but you knew that you could contribute, and you knew that you can solve could solve problems. Um, and what a loss for those employers. <laughs> <laughs> it is clear just from a simple conversation with you uh, that any organization you touch is going to go places and is going to do big things. Um, I mean, you're four months from having graduated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is wild. <laughs> it is. And I, yes. first of all, you know, thank you for the, <laughs> the vote of confidence. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I think, and I think, frankly, the pandemic is really shedding a light on what's possible mm-hmm. um, in in the workplace. Uh, you know, so many people are at home juggling family responsibilities with uh, with their work, um, but they're you know we haven't heard of of it, entire industries you know collapsing uh, yeah. because people are working remotely, uh, and so and and because people are more flexible with their hours or, you know, and and working at kind of odd hours or because, you know, a child comes into the room, you know, uh, with a diaper on the head or something, you know, like Mm -hmm. we, you know, um, and I think people are are starting to realize that it's okay uh, to include um, or to consider people's family situations uh, in making sure that they're set up for success in the workplace yeah. uh, and, and not to make assumptions about um, qualifications of, uh, of a potential employee uh, based on their, their, the status of their family. And I think that, uh, so I think, you know, I'm encouraged. I think that a lot of companies and organizations that were maybe resistant to uh, not only remote work, but things, implementing things like paid family leave um, and those kinds of workplace policies, I think, uh, are are really kind of 
turning the corner on some of these things because they're realizing that, you know, it may not be easy at first to, to make some of these changes uh, and to implement them, you know, seamlessly, mm -hmm. but it's definitely worth it. And it can, it really can improve, you know, the quality of work for everyone. 100% agree. 100% agree. Um, so let's get into what our turn to care is going to look like. So we know what it is. We've got a sense of the values that inspired it. So we know it's a good organization that's doing good things, right? Um, but let's talk about what those things that it's doing look like. So can you, um, we've, we've touched a little bit on who it supports um, mm -hmm. as our turn to care. Is that going to change now that it is um, a program of Love Labor Project? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, what we plan to offer uh, coming forward, the things that are in the works uh, include um, BIPOC-centric uh, support groups that will run uh, in addition to the support groups that Love Labor Project uh, offers uh, currently, um, creating a, a safer space um, for you know BIPOC folks uh, to, and for those of your listeners who may not be familiar, um, BIPOC stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. Oh, they ought they ought to okay. know by now. <laughs> okay, you've, 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 you've educated know. the masses. <laughs> you've educated the masses. Great. Um, and so, yeah, we we really felt that um, you know because caregivers have such, can have such intersectional identities. Um, there are some experiences that uh, the folks just may feel more comfortable sharing um, in uh, in a space with folks who they feel like could relate to them, right? Oh, yeah. We don't have to be like too sweet about it or anything. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes, you know, I'll say this. I'll say that sometimes, you know, it can be challenging to be in um, spaces where you're sharing really intimate details um, with, you know, white folks who, even if they're well-meaning, right. may not understand. The phrase um, well-meaning was the next one on my lips. Like they mean yep. well, but they don't yes. know. Exactly. Exactly. Um, or frankly, you know, someone could show up one day that doesn't mean well, <laughs> that really has yeah. like some deep seated uh, issues that they need to see someone about. Yeah. Um, but to pretend that racism doesn't have an impact um, on the caregiving experience, uh, you know, would be, yeah, I mean, I, I don't harmful. even have words I was gonna that. say naive, but harmful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, both, I think those are both great words to, to describe it. Um, and so, you know, really, giving people space to say, look, this is, you know, I'm, you know, I took my, you know, father to a doctor's appointment and we experienced, uh, you know, racial bias from the physician mm -hmm. or, um, you know, I, you know, I'll give an example from my own life, you know, just, um, you know, uh, making sure that my mother is, you know, presentable. It may be something about hair care, um, you know, that, that I know that my white counterparts just aren't going to understand. And their inability to understand doesn't make them bad people, um, but it can be triggering and it can be upsetting and it can be frustrating. Um, but being in a space where um, we're 
others are more likely to to be able to understand exactly what you're going through and, and what the concern is about the hair care like the history of you know black women's hair and 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 the implications and like what all of that means and why it's you know why it's important for me to make sure that she's taken care of in that particular way and um because it has to do with like the way that we present ourselves in the world and and there, there's just there's it, it goes so so much deeper than just a task to be completed right yeah. um and so yeah creating those safer spaces to have those conversations i think makes a huge difference and there aren't many things available like that right now um so in addition to those support groups that we'll be launching soon um we also are going to have uh BIPOC specific programming, um, you know, things that are trauma informed, because we know that there is racial and gender, um, racial gender and uh, generational trauma that exists within communities of color. Um, and that can impact the way that you provide care for your loved one. Um, and I even hesitate sometimes to use the term loved one, because there's also this assumption um, about the the type of relationship that you have with a parent. Hmm. Um, and so just acknowledging that there are different types of relationships um, that you can have with someone that you're caring for. Um, and that can be impacted by a lot of external forces that have existed for hundreds of years. Uh, so, you know, making sure that we have programming um, available uh, through that lens, um, you, we will have uh, programming around healing, um, healing those wounds as well, uh, and, and how to how to live and exist in that space um, is really important. So um, yeah, you know, just we really are looking forward to expanding um, the resources, you know, uh, I, one of the one of my favorite personal resources is um, therapy for black girls, uh, you know, is a great resource. That's how, you know, um, a, you know, I've been able to to research therapists that I know um, will have the cultural uh, competency and cultural understanding um, that I need, and I, you know, and and really talking about like what is therapy, um, you know, for folks who uh, may not be familiar, who've never had that experience, and uh, who may be hesitant. So a lot of these things, um, you know, are in the works, but I'm really excited um, to really expand these opportunities and to create these spaces. That sounds really exciting. Um, one thing I want to go back to it. You wouldn't have had the opportunity to hear this again. I, I've recorded too many episodes at one time. And so I just, I'd mentioned that there were some things on the camera earlier that I had to transfer to my computer. And one of them is an episode directly related to anti-racism. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's so much tied into hair in particular. And um, we won't dive into that because that can literally be its own episode. Um, but for listeners who might not understand, uh, particularly if you're white, your great-grandfather taught your grandfather who is still practicing medicine that black women or women of color with particular types of hair in short deserve less care or worse treatment than black people uh, black women in particular who have a particular type of hair that looks generally just looks more like white hair mm -hmm. that's what that's about okay and that was weighing on me. I was like, if I don't, if I don't let people know, then they'll never learn. <laughs> no, thank you. And I appreciate you breaking that down. And that's, 
that's something that is real. And I think um, as we have these conversations about anti-racism mm -hmm. uh, and really defining what that looks like, I think people will be shocked to realize that it's so pervasive um, and that it really infiltrates every fiber of our being um, individually and as, as a nation with, you know, the, you know, when you look at the way that women, uh, Black women have provided care for this country, you know, it started out with slavery, you know, yeah. and taking care of uh, the offspring of, of their, the, the slaveholders. And so, um, you know, and then you fast forward to, uh, you know, the indentured servants and the paid care workers, um, and there's a long legacy of, of not, um, you know, of, of not, first of all, not paying, not yep, paying yep. us at all. And then, uh, you know, paying us uh, menially. And so that's a, another thing that, you know, Caring Across Generations actually uh, co-advocates for alongside our sister organization, uh, the National National Domestic Workers Alliance. Um, it's for fair wages for folks who are, who are paid to do this work and, you know, making sure that their working environments are dignified. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned the, the vitriol and the, the the cruelty that these folks can often face um, in providing care for folks who, um, you know, if I'm a white person who grew up in the Jim Crow South um, and the only understanding or context I have for, for black people is that they are less than and that they are subhuman in some way. Yeah. Um, and now this person is uh, interacting with me on a very intimate level. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's no context for respect. There's no evolution um, of of understanding and values. And so, you know, I think that people, you know, I, my hope is that people really um, take a look at their biases uh, as they exist, um, and also figure out ways to uh, be actively anti-racist uh, against, uh, you know, and against anti-blackness in their own lives. Um, and you know, and there are actions that they have with with people who are providing care. Um, but my hope is also to help um, to help the black community heal, um, yeah. to help communities of color really begin to yeah to I I, I hate to say embrace. I hesitate to say that um, because I I feel like they're that would say that, you know, folks aren't out here, you know, loving everything about being Black. But I think there's also, you know, within Black communities, there's also um, a lot of, you know, kind of self-hatred that can exist as well that mm -hmm. also impacts the way that we are comfortable showing up um, and the way that we, and there's this fear sometimes associated with the way that we're going to be perceived. Um, uh, you know, there's a sometimes a, a fear of advocating for yourself. You know, I, my mother had to have um, four different diagnoses before she experienced four misdiagnoses before we finally got to the correct diagnosis. Um, had I decided that I was not qualified enough, that I was not intelligent enough, mm -hmm. um, that I was not worthy enough, uh, and that my mother wasn't worthy enough of getting the care that she absolutely needed um, because, you know, a white man in a white coat, um, you know, told me something yeah. uh, and that that should be gospel. Um, I think we would have been in a very, very bad off situation, right? Um, and it would have been 
you know, I think the journey would have been much different. Um, but again, because my parents instilled that confidence in me uh, and um, never, uh, you know, never allowed me to, uh, to be suppressed <laughs> within the home. You know, I think that, um, I think that really, allowed me to to step in to step up in a way that I, I probably wouldn't have otherwise and so that's another thing that I want to do with our turn to care is you know remind people of the power that they have yeah. um and and the worth that they carry uh even in situations that can seem intimidating um if you're working across class and racial lines well I am so happy that you and Rachel have teamed up for this because I know um, from that previous episode that Love Labor Project is international in scope. And Mm -hmm. so you'll be able to help build confidence and support so many more people who really need it. Um, And it sounds like it might not even just be support um, for their caregiver and kind of a general like, oh, you need a place to vent or share what kind of have you way. But they, I mean, they, they sound like confidence building exercises, like tactical resources. Um, and that's uh, kind of the benefit of having an organizer at the helm, I think. Uh, so I'm really, really thrilled uh, for all that you're going to bring uh, I, I, to the world, I guess, is fair <laughs> to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited too. I really am. Well, let's take, um, uh, I I always say a short coffee break right now. We'll take a coffee break and it'll last as long as it lasts. (laughs) We'll be right back. (laughs) We are back with Aisha Atkins. Um, this was not the fastest coffee break. We, we took our time, uh, but you know, I'm really loving this conversation that we're having. And I'm sorrowful that we have to bring it to a close. Um, but there are some, there's still some questions that I've got to, I've, that I want answers to. Dang it. All right. <laughs> oh, Let's go. So, bring on. When Rachel came on, she uh, had this phrase uh, that she hated. I think hate is probably the appropriate word. Um, let me know if you need anything. Let me know if you need anything, I think is what she does. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Accurate. (laughs) And so I was wondering if as a one, one of the several takeaways that I'm going to, that I'm asking you for, um, if there (laughs) is a similar phrase um, or something that's well-meaning, again, that phrase well-meaning, but it's actually maybe a little triggering. Yeah. I would say for me. There are a couple, I think, yeah, I think the the main one is probably, um, you know, God's going to bless you for this. Um, you know, and this comes from, you know, a lot of like older family members, you know, I'm a person of faith, I, I practice Christianity. Um, but I, yeah, I have a problem with kind of that analysis because it, it implies that like, you know, you're going to suffer for many, many years. And then one day, mm. like, I don't know, I'm going to die. <laughs> be okay. um, I don't know kind of where I, I understand what people mean. I understand that, you know, I'm doing something that many people view as honorable. Yeah. 
However, it doesn't change. It doesn't, there are two things it doesn't change. It doesn't change that caregiving is really hard. Um, It is really, really mentally and physically exhausting. Yeah. Um, It it just is, right? Uh, The other thing that it doesn't change is that, you know, my mother is dying. Um, And that's something that, you know, I don't think people understand is that this is something I'm bearing witness to not to be like overly emotional, but this is something I'm bearing witness to every single day. Um, And, and it doesn't make sense. You know, my mother has always been a good person and always very eager to help people. Um, You know, and so witnessing that every day um, and, and, and thinking somehow I'll be rewarded for, for that Mm -hmm. kind of just, you know, watching that every day um, is, is, it's difficult, Um, you know, and, you know, I definitely had questions, you know, when I, when I say my prayers, I, you know, I, you know, I have questions about, you know, purpose sometimes and, and, and why people, why good people suffer, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and seemingly, uh, you know, uh, I won't say bad people, because I don't know that I believe fully in that, but people who, uh, do terrible things, uh, somehow, sometimes are rewarded. Uh, it's challenging to reconcile that. So when people kind of, uh, you know, just inform me that, you know, I should keep doing what I'm doing, um, and that someday it'll be okay when there's really no end in sight, um, is frustrating. Uh, you know, I, I think what would be more helpful is, um, you know, maybe telling me that, you know, we understand uh, that this is difficult for you. Um, yes. You know, we believe that, you know, having faith uh, means that you have um, faith in the people that, you know, God has put in your life that like, you know, people um, who can support you and being grateful for that, being grateful for um, very specific things. And I think sometimes that can be more grounding and uh, less ethereal. And yeah, um, yeah, and and I think that provides more like immediate hope for me. Uh, Well, you you are such a great podcast guest because you're already answering the questions before I even (laughs) ask them. (laughs) Here is what I don't like and here is what you can do instead. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Wonderful. What I'm hearing in um, what you don't like about that phrase is that it really doesn't show genuine empathy. you know, with the solutions that you that you've offered as alternatives, um, you know, you let the person know that you actually see them, that you genuinely think about that they are going through something really, really hard, and that calling out specifics, specific things, lets you know that you are being seen. Um, rather than just something kind of generic that someone can toss out, toss out, you know, from across the mm-hmm. church parking lot. Exactly. Bingo. Oh, oh, oh bingo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to borrow a phrase from my father, I think I've, yeah, I think we're, we're kind of all morphing into one person at this point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet. <laughs> so, 
Okay, now um, I was going to follow up with something to take, but the audience can take away from the conversation that you want to make sure that um, that they take back with their, in their lives. And you've given us, you've given us a whole lot. You're going to, I'm going to have to like keep inviting you back because I feel like every time you come back, there's going to be something new and um, wonderful that you're doing. Um, I love that. But do you happen to have something or a point that you want to make sure that the audience takes away? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, and I alluded to this before, uh, but if you are a, a caregiver, a millennial caregiver, um, you know, if you have these like intersecting identities, know your worth, know that you are mm. worth the time, you are worth the resources, you're not an imposition, you're not in the way. Um, and, you know, that there are spaces like ours um, where you can be seen and heard. Um, and, you know, we have to keep uh, fighting, we have to keep telling our stories. Um, you know, and even though there may be an expectation, you know, uh, that seems like an unfair burden that's put on you, um, you know, there are places that that can can support you. And so it's it's it can be overwhelming and it can be exhausting, but um, definitely dig in, find those resources locally, uh, tell people in your life exactly what you need, and you might be surprised at how they show up for you. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, and what, wow, we hadn't even really gotten to that in, in the, the rest of what we were talking about. So I'm glad, I'm glad that we saved space for that. Um, Aisha, this has been an incredible, incredible conversation. On behalf of the Bottomless Coffee community, I'm going to go ahead and express profound gratitude for you taking the time to speak with me and to us today um, please, please, please tell me, how can we support you um, in your work? Definitely. Uh, number one is funding. I know people don't like to hear that, but if um, you're This looking... is a safe space for funding. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so if you're looking uh, for a place to support um, you know, anti-racist work that's that's going on. Um, I know that Rachel is committed to that, uh, and and that's the only reason that I am working with her um, is because of her her profound commitment to doing that work. Uh, please consider donating to Love Labor Project. You can go to lovelaborproject.org, click the donate button. Uh, you know, we want to expand these programs, but oftentimes they do take money because we want to reach out to folks in BIPOC communities. But we want to we want to be able to compensate them for their time as well. So uh, we would we would love if you would make a donation. Yeah, I, I don't think Rachel even suggested that we donate to Love Labor Project. <laughs> She's been on here twice. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why that's why it takes two. It that's takes why, two. You know, that's why it takes two. <laughs> it, and it does take money, y'all. <laughs> this this is work. It is hard work. It is beneficial for everybody if you can donate to love labor project please do uh you know i'm i'm going to i can't believe i haven't done it before so <laughs> thank you we we appreciate that drum absolutely thank you so much um one last time where would you like where can we follow you where can we connect yeah no connect with me 
you can connect with me on my website, AishaAdkins.com, uh, and you'll find the links there to all of my social media, um, most active on uh, Instagram. Uh, so certainly don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much, Aisha. Thank you, Drew. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining in the conversation today. If you would like exclusive access to live streams of these conversations, if you want to hear what goes on during the coffee breaks, or if you'd like to join a community of people who help to make this podcast possible, then please join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash bottomlesscoffee. Bottomless Coffee Podcast is produced by me, Jerome Evans, on social media everywhere as at Jerome T. Evans. Our Patreon producers are listed in the episode description. You can connect with the podcast on Instagram at at Bottomless Coffee Podcast. Our music is by Noir et Blanc V and God Mode. Thanks all, and I'll see you next time.